and welcome to episode 69 of the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. Proudly brought to you by H. Parsons Funeral Directors, an Australian family-owned and operated funeral director, serving the Illawarra since 1893. Firstly, I'd like to sincerely thank all of the interviewees, listeners and the football community of the Illawarra, Australia and elsewhere around the world who download this podcast. Additionally, I'd like to say thank you to the tremendous people who contribute, comment and reminisce on the social media pages. Rex Layton is our interviewee in episode 69. For over several decades, Rex has been a part of the Illawarra football fabric and continues to be part of our wonderful community. In this episode, we examine his family's connection with the game, his junior and senior football career, his coaching appointments, his refereeing journey and the various footballing administrative roles that he has fulfilled in the region. Extremely humble, Rex has given so much to Illawarra football and listening to his journey was a fantastic experience for me in so many ways. Due to his varied journey, we examined different areas of the game in the Illawarra along with hearing about great people clubs and organisations. It was absolutely terrific listening to Rex recalling his footballing life and for me it was a pleasure recording his memories. I sincerely thank and appreciate the time Rex took in recording this episode. Please enjoy episode 69. to the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. I'm here at Carmel Library and I'm here with a very, very special guest in Rex Layton. Rex, morning and welcome to the podcast. Travis, morning to you. There's a lot to get through. Um, <laughs> you've had a, a varied and long uh, time in the game. So um, firstly, I normally start off about your first memory of football, but if we could go back a, a step before you, um, can you tell us a bit about your dad and um, his relationship with the game? Yeah, he was he was born in a little place called Neath, near Cessnock. Um, began playing football with Neath, which wasn't much of a team, but he did play a year or two with uh, Western, that I don't really know a lot about. Yeah, a, a pretty famous club in the area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, then he was the youngest of seven and he lost his father when he was 12 and during the depression years there was no work there so in his early teens uh sorry late teens he came down to Wollongong and stayed at my mother's parents place because of a a British relationship (laughs) that had developed on a ship out to Australia he came down ostensibly for the purposes of getting work but because he played football, his, his uh, chances of getting work were better every day. They had to stand on a hill to see if they were chosen to work. But because he was a footballer and playing with Steelworks teams, he was able to get quite a bit of work. And um, consequently, he played with the Steelworks team for quite a while. Uh, I'm not sure the competition levels at that stage but 
Subsequently, late in the 1930s and 40s through to 47 when he finished playing, he played with Winuna for a short period, but mostly with Coromel Rangers. Uh, in 1943, they won the, uh, the league, I think. And the last year he played in 1947, when I was one year old, uh, they won the State Cup. And um, I know at some stage there he, he broke an ankle and decided to give it away at that point. So that was his history. He had he got a couple of photos of him. I've got a photo of him playing at Mackay Park um, with some team. I'm not sure what team it is, but he's committing this this uh, effort to stop a goalkeeper getting rid of the ball that if he did today, he would have been sent off, I think. <laughs> and do you know what position he... Yeah, he's mainly, in the old days, he, he was mainly a wing half. Yep. Left and right half, as they called it in those days. And for most of the listeners would be aware of uh, where Winuna and... Winuna Bulleye and Coromel Rangers played. It was pretty much the MPL um, of its day. It was, um, uh, yep. The old uh, state association before the federation came in. And I think the Steelworks team would have been, they had one or two years in that um, state league type comp as well. So um, he obviously had some pedigree to him to, yep. to be playing in that league. In 1955, uh, you started your soccer journey with Coniston Junior Soccer Club. Is this your first memory of soccer? And um, if it's not, tell us what is. No, my first memory is is going to Memorial Park after Dad retired during the early 50s to watch Coromel. I always remember that we used to walk across what is now Memorial Park number two and be looking for the scoreboard to see what the score was in the reserve grade and... So it would have been you know, seven or eight at the time, uh, five, six, seven or eight, those, those years. The 1955, my dad got involved with another guy who was looking, uh, by the name of Jim Valentine, who was looking to start a club in Coniston. And um, during 1954, it was, they had a lot of kick-arounds on what was close to Noble at the time, now McKinnon Park, I think. And um, the the club was officially formed, first uh, field of teams in 1955, three teams, two under 10s and an under 12. And uh, I can still clearly remember the first game that we played. it was an under-10 game at a ground that doesn't exist, but it was in Lake Avenue, Congilla. As you're heading south and you start to go up the hill, you could go into the left, and it yep. was near the Steelworks. Yep. And uh, we won the game 1-0. I can still remember the vision of the ball going in the goal, which had no nets, and it was scored by a fellow by the name of John Scott, or John Trevelyan Scott, as he's now known, and... He was played with us for quite a bit in juniors and then became very active in the basketball scene. So those uh, early years at Coniston, um, like you said, they played at now what is McKinnon. Um, but uh, the colours of the jersey, shorts and socks? Yeah, black and gold. <laughs> um, 
hand-sewn shirts with a hand-sewn C on. And, uh, the ladies of the officials of the club made. Uh, I don't really know what led to the choice of colours. I think um, it was reflective of Cessnock, I think. Okay. But um, my mother made that comment about 12 or 18 months ago before she passed away. And, um, you know, they, they're all hand-sewn. And, you know, it was... Uh, and then they would wash them every week and this sort of stuff. So. And in terms of that uh, junior career, uh, what are some of the memories in terms of coaches, players, gala days, opposition, oh, clubs? There's just so many. It's hard to reflect on them all but um, we had some good coaches I mean my dad coached for the first couple of years but then he didn't want to coach my side so we had other coaches like um, Bob Leishman who similarly came from Abermain and had played up there and was also a referee a bit later um, the club engaged a fellow by the name of Sam Ward, well-known in Belgani circles, and he coached us from about um, 14, 13 or 14, through to under 17, and brought about a complete change in the way we, we trained. There were other people like Jim Frame, who was a Scotsman, yeah. that was actively involved as a, as a coach, and... His son Bill played for a while. Uh, there were just you know, so a lot of coaches. In terms of opposition, I mean, we regularly, every second year, because there were two-year gaps in ages, we would become basically the top side. We won the second year under 10s, the second year under 12s, under 14s. In the meantime, the, in the in between years, there was Coromel, Balgani, Max Tolson played with Balgani, Dennis Patterson, Jeff Gibson, Phil Carr were always that year ahead of us and were a very strong side for Coromel at the yeah. time. Winuna was also fairly strong in juniors at that point. And then through the those... 11, 12, 13 years, we had Ferry Meadow Hostel and Berkeley Hostel come into the competitions and um, they only had certain teams and then a few of them moved on to other clubs and uh, a guy by the name of Mick Atkin and his brother, twin brother Peter, came to us from uh, Ferry Meadow Hostel and we... When Berkeley Hostel closed, Sav, Sav Barnaba and John McGarver came to us from Berkeley. Now, I always remember a game against Berkeley Hostel in about under 12s, I think. On Glasnevin, there was this howling westerly blowing, and it finished up 9 6. Oh, it's <laughs> the highest scoring game I've ever played in. And. Um, of the nine, 15 goals, 14 of them were scored at the at the eastern end. And that was a game in which Sabanapala played, McGarver played, and also Les Murray played. Wow. He was 
a resident of um, Berkeley Hostel in those days. Uh, the colour and um, I guess the excitement of, of gala days, how, oh. what was it like for you? Incredible, really. I mean, it was... Uh, yeah. It was always the high, the March Pass was always the highlight, and it was a, again a guy from Ferry Meadow Hostel, Dick Townsend, who was I don't know he'd been some British officer, but he orchestrated the March Pass in such a way. He was only a little guy, but he had this booming voice, and he would just orchestrate the March Pass, and and you had the big crossover of teams going from one end of Balgowny to the other. But, you know, every club had a tent up and, um, you know, it was just amazing sort of day, 10-minute games, those sorts of things. And I remember the ladies of our club are somewhat embarrassed. I think we were about under-14s and they made these silk shirts for us, right? (laughs) So gold silk shirts that stood out. And we won the March Pass that year. Maybe it was the silk shirts, I don't know. There was also uh, a Robert Brown Cup. Uh, what do you remember yeah. about that? Uh, I remember that um, in the year we were under 17, a lot of us were under 16, under 16, sorry, under 16s. We were undefeated through the year and we won the Robert Brown Cup as well. And it, it was a year that the works of Sam Ward coaching us had produced a, a really good team. I mean, they, we had some incredible battles against Balambi at the time. They were a really good side as well. Yeah. Um, but we were able to go through the year undefeated and win both the competition and the Robert Brown Cup. And it was, you know, it was huge to win it. For yourself, um, during these junior years, what position were you predominantly playing? Uh, I started off, like my dad, as a wing half, but a bit later I became a, what they call centre half, or yep. stopper, or whatever. Yeah, it was a position I really enjoyed uh, playing. The game was always in front of you, uh, required anticipation as much as anything, and... Um, it was funny though, we had a couple of goalkeepers who didn't like to kick goal kicks. <laughs> Finished up. And one of them came from Belgana, her old club actually, is Kip McGrath, oh, yeah. uh, who you would know as the educationalist. Yeah. He's a guy I went to school with as well. And um, he, he hated taking goal kicks, so I had to take goal kicks the, <laughs> the whole season. <laughs> Before we talk about uh, yourself and your sort of first trials for the Illawarra representative team and, and what you did in that space. Um, uh, what was your interaction with your dad in terms of, uh, would he give advice or would he just watch? No, nah, he, he withdrew. He coached us early on, but he withdrew yep. because he didn't want to be seen to be involved. He managed, he managed the team for a while, but Sam Ward did the coaching and... Um, yeah, Dad worked all afternoon shift, yep. so he didn't really have the time to be involved in in coaching the side at all. But um, he wouldn't. Yeah, he would give a little bit of advice, yeah. and yeah, never wait, never let the ball bounce, don't wait for the ball, move towards the ball. You know, yeah. this sort of stuff, um, which 
yeah, any father would do who played the game, I guess. The Illawarra representative teams, and, and you had a few years in, in those teams. Um, what are your memories of the first trial out and then making that team? Look, I don't remember a lot. I know we used to play North versus South. Yeah. Uh, There's all this bit of parochial rivalry in the Illawarra. If you were north of Crown Street, you were part of the, the elite. If you were south of Crown Street, then you were the South. But we would play North versus South trials. Um, the the side would be chosen from that. Um, I don't remember heaps about it, yep. but I remember the the year again when we were under sixteens, and um, we won the state championships. Yep. Um, we had a really good side, um, and um, we beat Canterbury. At Lambert Park, three-one, I think, in the in the final of the state championships, and um, from that, four of us were chosen in the four from the Illawarra yeah. were chosen in the state side to to a Victoria. And so, um, who were the guys that got selected, and what do you recall of that? Uh, Ian Potter from Russellvale. Yeah. Uh, John Hoogland, who played with Cotterson yeah. and later played with Canterbury Marrickville in the State League. And um, Jeff Mackey from Helensburg, who is a, a left winger. There were a couple of others that were pretty unlucky, actually. But um, we, we underwent some terrific coaching at Canterbury um, from, uh, what was his name? Dennis Adrigan who was really well-respected former, I think he was Hungarian, coach. And um, we toured Victoria, played three or four matches um, with the main one against Victoria at Olympic Park. And I have to say, it was a bit of a runaround. Marking Otty and Bonnie was not the greatest pleasure or the, (laughs) the best experience I've had, but... You learn a lot from these things, and uh, he put the cleaners through us a bit on that day. Uh, I think the result was 2 1 or something, but he was outstanding and a uh, very difficult player to to get a hold of. And was it, a, it was probably no surprise to you that later on, when you saw him do what he did in his oh, career, that not at all. you'd experienced uh, at an earlier stage what he was capable of? Correct, and in that. In that New South Wales side, there are a couple of future Socceroos as well. Peter Fuses was the goalkeeper. Yep. He played with the Socceroos. Dennis Yeager, who played with Canterbury. But there, there were quite a few that went on and played State League. Uh, Ray Cush, um, Ian Allen, I think, played with Glazeville, right? And there were just quite a number. But Yeager and Fuses. Oh, Martin Lissing played with, like, Hakoa. So. Some names there. This is uh, around, I guess, 62-ish. 62, yeah. yeah. So before we talk about the next move, which was uh, the third team or the youth team um, with South Coast United, were you still going in this sort of teenage period to watch games? Oh, absolutely. And, and, And in particular, was it, I guess, South Coast United were in their first couple of years, but were you going still to Coromel or...? No, no, uh, they'd moved to Balls Paddock around 60. D1 or 60, yep. 
And uh, mum and dad always used to go, so yeah. I would go with them. My dad never stopped following football, and my yeah. mother loved watching it as well. So we used to go to Balls Paddock all the time, and then gradually saw it the the, the South Coast team build. Yeah. You know, there were the early players like um, Harris. I think Trap Nichols played in goals one year. Yeah. It's probably one of the most naturally gifted goalkeepers I've ever seen. He's just too short. But um, then Kelly came and really started to build the professional approach in there. Um, but there were players I remember from those early days, you know, like Wim van der Gaag and um, uh, Bernie Harris, yeah. all the Harris played under Kelly. So, yeah, it was, I think Baumgartner was the, yeah, Leo sure. Baumgartner was the original coach. Yeah. So, uh, football is, uh, I guess, part of the fabric of your life at that point in time. Absolutely. So, was it a natural progression or did you have to trial out for, in 63 to make that South Coast United youth team? Uh, got a letter of invitation okay. to, to come and, trial and play and finish up playing. Um, Played that season in 63 in the third grade where a number of the the guys, um, John Hoogland went to Canterbury, but Mick Atkin that I spoke about was there, Sab Barnaby was there, Errol Freem, a whole heap of local guys. John Thompson, although maybe Ian Astle, I think, was the goalkeeper. Um, And, you know, we had a really good year. Um, We we played well, learnt an immense amount under Kelly about the way to approach training and, and, and be professional about the way you play and those sorts of things. He was that archetypal. So did he essentially coach the third grade? He coached, yeah, he coached the third grade. Spent a lot of time with us. It was all one, two, one, two, one, two, and, you know, physical training. And he he was extremely good. Um, He's tremendous, tremendously professional, supportive coach. He didn't take nonsense and um, just learned a lot about being professional and uh, we had this great year we played in the grand final that year yeah uh, on the same day as the first grade so beat it, was up the same day. it was the same day we played so uh, yeah talk us through that because it's a uh, i guess a, well when a we proud, played uh, proud moment for the region oh, fabulous uh, it was a day that you know i forget what time we started it was probably 11 11 30 but we played Canterbury, who'd been yeah. our uh, the, our biggest competitor all year. Yeah. Same guys that we played against in the <laughs> junior rep games, and we drew one all. Um, so we we had to have a replay. I'll come to the replay in a minute. But for the rest of the day, it just became yeah the the atmosphere on that day. Even though the atmosphere at Walls Paddock had been terrific, yeah. I'd never experienced football atmosphere like that day. The, the sports ground had 30,000 people, which was 
the record yeah. for the time and it, it was just unbelievable and I remember seeing guys Italian guys yeah Freddie Bonadio I still remember seeing him walking around carrying a coffin with Arpia written on it <laughs> and, and it, it was just you know just an unbelievable day when John Brownlee scored the goal from about 30, 30 yards it just set the ground alight and um, you know the win was unexpected but just fabulous and they they killed them played them off the park and was there um, uh, for yourself a sense of pride you were part of the club oh yeah absolutely you'd been in the grand final early on even though it was a draw it must have just been just a crazy day for the fans that had gone up and, and people that were part of the club. Yeah, it was. It was just a fabulous day. And, you know, I was lucky enough many, many years later to go to Perth and watch the Wolves <laughs> when they won. But, uh, you know, we were such a small group there that day. But I think the majority of the support on the 30,000 was for South Coast United. In, you know, it was just amazing. I think half a Wollongong but at the time, must have been up there. And um, going back to the third grade grand final replay? Yeah. Um, well, we then, we then played at Wentworth Park a week later and it was uh, it poured rain the whole game and uh, we drew nil all. So we had to replay again, which we did a week later. <laughs> and um, we lost... 1-0 on a penalty that was given away by probably one of the best players in our side, which, who was Brian Lincoln, yep. who later went on to play with Australia, I think. He was a, an English, yep. young English immigrant. Uh, he, I think he was a schoolboy international, but he played with us in the third grade and he went on to play later with Croatia, I think, and may have even played for Australia. So, a slight disappointment, but overall a great year. Oh, yeah. It was fabulous. It was a year I'll never forget, to be honest. And and the colours were the same for all grades in terms of black shorts, yep. red shirts? No, no. at that time they shorts. were white shorts yep. with a long red, yep. um, long sleeve red yep. shirt with white trimmings. And the black and red came... Uh, the next year, I think, okay. 64, 65. And, and on um, Kelly, um, uh, people talk about his impact in the area um, and you're of an age to a, witness it in person but then see, um, you know, he had his own article in the Mercury, um, you know, he, he wrote a book, you know, he'd done, done all this stuff. Uh, was he charismatic Did he, or was he just a great person that just he, put himself out there basically he was a, he was almost the perfect gentleman you know and that would never hear him fly off the handle he'd be firm yeah um he seemed to mix really well with the community um you know he uh he was just for me the archetypal professional i i mean some of the players that played with him i i don't think all thought that yeah. that they would have been of the wilder group that would like to have a drink and <laughs> this sort of stuff. But uh, sixty-four, did you continue on in third grade? Yeah, I did. 
I did, but at the same time I'd started work and started part-time uni and it became, you know, there was no real professional pathways in those days, yeah. if you will, you know, and you had to make decisions and I was working full-time and doing part-time yeah. university and getting to training was difficult, but I played that year out there and played a, two or three games reserve grade. But um, at the end of the year, I thought, I can't continue to do this. You spread too thin. Yeah. Uh, 65, um, you went back to your home club, Coniston, and they were now in the IDSA competition. Before you talk about that, um, when did the senior club start? And was it that year or was it a year or no, two? No, no, it was that? a year or two before that. They, they didn't have a senior team. Yeah. And uh, they decided to put one into the all-age competition, I think and it was called. And what is the all-age competition? Was well, it, it was, like an amateurs in a Yeah, sense? it was very much an amateur competition. And when they formed the team, one of the, the players that was active was a fellow named Peter Bannister, who had just arrived in Australia and spent, and as you're well aware, became Mr. University Football Club for years and years and just one of the nicest people you would ever meet in your life. But he was one of the... Some friends of mine who had played through to 17s were the instigators in putting the team together. And then people like Peter and some other people around the place came and joined the team and... And they they went reasonably well, so they decided to apply for the IDSA. Yeah. Do you recall, um, although you weren't part of it, do you recall any of the other teams in that all age competition? No, I don't. No, I really don't. So for you, it was a pretty um, with the workload that you had, study and 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 your job. Um, it was pretty easy to go back to your home club. So what was it like in um, 65 to return and play in the senior comp? Well, we, it was an incredible year, actually. Uh, it was just unbelievable because we, a lot of the players were players I played juniors with and a few guys came in and had a pretty good side. We played in what was the second division. Okay. Um, we played against teams like FC Danubia, uh, I think Warrawong may have had a team, um, Piccadilly, who I will come to, yeah. um, FC Alemania, who were playing at Dalton Park. So there were a lot of um, ethnic, community-based teams, I'll put it that way. Um, and um, we, we, we did quite well. We then had a, a couple of issues in the game against Danubia, who played at King George V over. Yep. Um, they didn't last long as a team. But then we played Piccadilly, who had been previously been Hellas. Yep. And I think, oh, sorry, had been Hellas, and then in between had been Hellenic. And they'd been disbanded as Hellas. Uh, I remember as a boy watching this brawl erupt around at McKay Park where they played yeah. and cycling up to the police station, which was just up the road and saying, there's a brawl going on down there. <laughs> um, and then 
so we they'd reformed as Piccadilly and we played them at Glasnevin and uh, there was a pitch invasion um, we didn't see much of it our officials got us into the shed as quickly as they could um, they had gone on to try and quell it and then when the IDSA dealt with it Coniston were fine because the officials went onto the field and that all they were trying to do was to yep. get the players off and <laughs> get uh, everyone into the sheds so uh, the season went on and we played them again um, I think final or grand final major semi I can't remember and we were getting beat 2-0 and then we scored two goals one was they disputed the penalty they stood but they went a bit berserk and then another one I can still remember Graham Rolls pushing the ball through and one of our guys scoring and putting us ahead 3-2 the next thing, the field was invaded again. So we'd gone ahead 3-2 with not long left. And the field was invaded again and we were told to get off. And I remember as we were walking off at Coral, uh, this player ran past me and kicked the referee fair up the backside. <laughs> the referee was Albert Robinson, who'd been a top referee around the place for years. And the player just kicked him fair up the backside. And they were then chucked out of the competition again. So we gained promotion for the following year in 66. So you just won the league in 65? Yeah. And so Piccadilly, where did they play? So they were predominantly a Greek club. They were. And where did they play out of? Yeah, I'm trying to remember where we played them at, actually. Um... I, to be truthful, I can't remember the yeah. ground. Um, I, I just remember the two games. Um, and what were Alemania, we played at Bolton Park. Park. Piccadilly, I just can't remember. And what was it for you? I guess you had the structure of Federation football for two years. You come back, your home club, you got this youthful team, and the Coniston club's fine, but then you're sort of interacting with clubs where some of their fans would do this. Was it frightening for your 1920 at that uh, it was, time? Yeah, it was. I mean, that, that day was not pleasant. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, particularly the one at Glasnow. Glass, no, I mean, it erupted because one of our guys, something happened to him and he just turned around and he tapped <laughs> the guy in the ankle. He kicked him. But, yeah. you know, that's what caused it. So we were the targets in... In the other one, though, the referee was the target because he'd given the penalty and then he'd allowed what they considered to be a, an offside goal and the referee became the target. Uh, but that was fairly... I mean, in the, the 60s and very early 70s, it was not uncommon for those things yeah, to be I've occurring. i read the newspaper articles. And, and you know, it was, it was difficult at times. Um, and certainly... Found out when I was refereeing. Yeah. But uh, when you're playing, I mean, there are a number of times. I remember Marula Wanderers and Balambi had several altercations. And, you know, it was 
think even Primby had some issues there at oh, some stages. Primby, yeah. Yeah. I remember we played... No, it was Primby was when I was refereeing. But, um, yeah, I remember they were playing at King George V Oval and you'd, you'd get there and there'd be 10 or 20 people there and then at 3 o'clock suddenly there's about 3,000 people on the hill. Crazy. Like King George V. <laughs> so... Was it? Um, was there any mixed emotions, or you'd sort of? Uh, did you miss federation football a little bit, or? Um, no, not really. I, I mean, life takes you on yeah. certain journeys, and I would have liked to have played more, but yeah. it, it just wasn't practical yeah. with work, uni, and the way life was going. You know, I mean, it, uh, it you had to focus on what the future was. And was it a proud moment for yourself and others that have been at Coniston a long time that you said now all age, oh, yeah. division and now Absolutely. first division football? It must have been extraordinary. To be part of of that growth of that yeah. club, which has gone through several things, well, it was terrific. I mean, you know, I always look back on it very fondly. I have some long, long, long-standing friendships as a result of it. 66 and 67 for you um, were interrupted seasons um, because of leg breaks. Now, I don't want to talk about um, uh, the leg breaks uh, unless you want to talk about them, but it must have been personally um, a difficult time because up until this time, football and soccer had been a real part of your your yeah. life. So to be interrupted like that and, and you know, it's, you can be humble and not say anything, but you were on a... Trajectory to being, I guess, first division IDSA player um, of, of yeah. some level, or the club was. So, was it hard? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was. It was actually sixty-seven that break. It was a game against Fern Hill, and we were both near the top of the league. And it was. Uh, I remember the game well. It started off. I mean, at the time, Fern Hills Harold uh, Hughes was one of their. Star forwards. Yeah. Um, it was a, a Glass Noble. They turned the ground around to be running north south at the time. Yeah. Jack Stiff was the referee, and it's, it started off very hard and strong. I mean, we were both top of the table and trying to get to. Um, we were trying to get ahead of them. Yeah. Anyway, it was about midway through the second half. I just. Went for the ball with um, Frank Peterson of Fernhill, and yeah. we just legs clashed, and my shin snapped in half. Um, it was nothing. Frank did nothing. It was just one of those things that happens. Um, and we we still nearly won the game because I remember being behind the goal, waiting for the ambulance to come, and Kenny Buckley almost scored for us <laughs> for the header, um, but. Yeah, finished the season for me but I was three months in plaster and they, they didn't have great rehab in those days and didn't have moon boots <laughs> and those sorts of things but uh, the second break I was out of plaster two weeks and I fell off a horse being oh, yeah. silly so so before that break um, and even the year before in 66 then so what was um, the first division like in the IDSA back then you know some of the the teams you played against and, and what your you experienced as a player? 
Yeah, look, I think it was a pretty good competition, really. I mean, Malambi were a good side. Yeah. Uh, Bullo yeah. were always a good side. Um, Fernhill were a good side. Um, Balambi was this, becoming the side to beat all the time. Um, we had games against, you know, Warilla Wanderers and some of those sorts of... Uh, I think EPT might have gone at that stage. I don't remember actually playing yeah. against EPT. Um, but, you know, it was a strong competition and there were an increasing number of players who played in the Federation coming back, coming back to play and that was strengthening the competition because, you know, the higher the level you play, the, the better you stand against and yeah. it, um, it started to increase the, the intensity of the competition. And uh, do you recall uh, some difficult opponents that you had? Because you would have been uh, marking up some, yeah. some decent strikers at the time. Well, Harold Hughes was always difficult. Um, uh, Graham Baker yeah. from Bullo. Bullo uh, were a really good side. Um, they, they are the two that stick in my mind. Um, I'm sure there would have been others, but those two in particular. Strong, oh, there were a couple of, a couple of difficult guys. They, they weren't Malambi's best players, but they were hard nuts. Yeah. Yeah, their best players were Robert Banks and Tony Gill and those sorts of players who played around the midfield and those sorts of things. But Earl Drage and <laughs> Roger McNeely, they were just hard nuts, you know, yeah. and... Uh, they, head down and bang into you and not give two hoots about it. And and for the Coniston team, um, when you watched your team play, um, uh, who was the sort of enjoyable couple of players or creative uh, players to, that did things for you one guys? Of, one of the best players we had was Graham Rolls. I mean, he was... His brother Tom had played with Australia, but yeah. Graham was just uh, mousy. Everyone called him. He, he was just a gifted sort of footballer. Doc Leishman was only a small guy, but he was a very good player. Um, uh, we gained the services of Bobby Logan from yeah. Fernhill, who became close friends with a group of us. Uh, he was always dangerous on the wide, uh, out wide on the right. Um, Kenny Buckley joined us from Unidera. He was six foot two, three, and was always dangerous in the air. And, uh, and Ian Astle, Chica Astle. Obviously, and, yeah. and he had, obviously, Federation. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was a great goalkeeper. And probably he and Kel Potter are the two most commanding goalkeepers in the air, in their yep. goal area that I can remember. I mean, there's some... Better shot stoppers yep. like John Newell and uh, a, a few others, but those two just commanded their area. They all, if they came for the ball, they got it. Well, I guess from your perspective as a defensive player, to have Ian oh. as your goalkeeper would have given you great confidence. It, it did. Yeah, you'd hear him, keep it, keep it, and it was his. Uh, he never missed anything of that nature. No, and and the coach in those three years at Coniston? 
Phil Peters yeah. uh, was a coach, he's a former Coromel Rangers player. Yeah. And what was uh, he like as a coach? Oh, terrific. Yeah, he's he, he's former Cessnock Coromel Rangers player of the 50s and yeah. um, he he was just a really good coach. He was good for the team. Um, initially, Sam Ward did in the, the very early days, but he didn't want to move. So Phil Peters joined us and... Um, he was terrific, to be honest. And it must have been um, just like grounds like Pop Errington and stuff like that. <laughs> Honiston's ground must have been a, a nice intimate ground as well when you had the bigger clubs you played against. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it eventually led to Coniston being removed from the initial Premier League yeah. um, because it was short and... Uh, yeah, it wasn't the best of surfaces, but it was good to play on. You get a good atmosphere there on a good day. And, um, yeah, uh, I often talk with Norm Flanagan now and he, he tells me what he think, thought of Glasson. <laughs> and your mum and dad, would they be able to watch at Coniston at times? Uh, work yeah, they did. Mum always did. Dad, dad started playing golf, but he, he would come and watch a lot. Uh, assuming due to the leg breaks that um, that in 68 and 69 that's why you um, became uh, Coniston the senior club secretary and and you started uh, coaching your junior team is, is that right? Yeah, yeah it is I, I'd coached the junior team before but um, I'd coached the under 19 or something and, yeah. but I did uh I did become secretary. They were looking for someone to do it. I was able to to manage it, um, and it opened my eyes to the running of the club yeah. and the difficulties in not the difficulties, but the challenges, particularly in a volunteer sense. Um, you know, and it developed this res- incredible respect for volunteers that that do run clubs. Yeah. Um, you know, you just don't appreciate the amount of time as a player you just don't appreciate the amount of time that <laughs> people put in to enable you to enjoy the game and uh, that you play you turn up you train you turn up and play but so much work goes into it that's not funny and uh, yeah probably my my fondest memory of that period is at that at that point Football New South Wales had not long been given this land at Park Lee, yeah. uh, a chicken farm by <laughs> Valentine, I think his name was. Um, and they had started these coaching camps and there was no such thing in those days. And uh, so we introduced a scholarship in our club yeah. and sent two kids each year after that to that camp and I remember taking them up the first time and arriving at this the dormitories were in the old chicken sheds and whatever (laughs) but the the two kids gained immensely out of it and became really good players Billy Cotamanides and Gordon Mitchell Wow Uh, For yourself um, at that time um, who were some of the the people on the Coniston committee that you were working with and Uh, floating around? Eddie Buckland, Bobby Musgrove, 
Martin Doyle, who was, and his wife, who were just, uh, they were the soul of that club for years and years and years. I mean, Mary worked in the canteen for, God knows how many years, even after Marty died. Um, you know, and all those ladies who did work in that canteen, yeah, from the time, I mean, going back to my mother, yeah. she, she used to work till three o'clock in the morning with a catering company, come home, make toffee apples, and have them over at the ground for sale by eight o'clock on wow. a Saturday morning. But, you know, the, the Bobby Musgrove, Eddie Buckland, Marty Doyle, um, there was a lady by the name of Betty Dixon, who was treasurer for a while, who had three sons play. Yep. Kenny, uh, I can't remember their names, uh, but Kenny Dixon played quite a bit. So for yourself, uh, in, in 69, um, you started refereeing um, and continued to do so until 1970 at this point. Um, uh, why did you put your hand up to join the refereeing ranks? Um, I finished up. I, I have found myself refereeing junior games okay. at Coniston, you know, because there were no junior referees in those yeah. days. And nothing like the infrastructure of yeah. referees that we have now. And I finished up, i would be doing these games. And one thing my father said to me, he, he gave me a book of laws. He said, if you're going to play this game, you need to know the laws. Right? And fair, okay. So I just started refereeing. I was doing it voluntarily. Yeah. Uh, a long time, I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. Yep. So I joined, and uh, to be honest, I loved it. Uh, yep. Just it, it was somewhat challenging at the start, um, but uh, you know that it. I can remember refereeing teams like Warrawong that um, Darcy Wentworth. Um, other teams up at uh, Kumadichia, Port Kembla and Kembalora. They weren't Kembalora, they were a Portuguese team. Um, and So straight away you're within the IDSA refereeing ranks yep. and you're doing second division games. Yes. Straight away. Is it Reserve like grade. 22, 23? Uh, yeah, that's what it was, yeah. And uh, yeah, I was sort of lucky in that a lot of it had been embedded in me yep. and... The referees at the time had some really, really, really terrific, um, experienced referees that put a lot back in to um, ensuring you knew the laws. Yeah, there were people like George Richardson, Jim Vickery, Vince Masters, Albert Robinson. they were the guys that were retired that yep. I can remember that were doing most of that. They were there in sort of a mentor yeah, capacity. They would make their homes available to go around and talk through the laws and the things that you had to do, um, which would do. You had to go through the exam process. Yep. And in those days, the, the exam process was much, much stronger than it is today. Um, you know, you had to get something like 80 or 90% Wow. to get the certificate in the theory. Now, you can get a certificate with 60% or 80%, something I forget. And then if you want to get a, a grade one, so which would have been six years later, you had to score 96%. So you could only get two questions wrong. 
So you, you had to know the laws. Yeah. And I think that's something that's a little bit lacking these days. But, uh, yeah, I, I just, I enjoyed it. I don't know if, what prompted me to stop. It was just that I, I think I had started playing in a social competition while I was refereeing yeah. because you were not allowed to register as a player in either of those two competitions and referee, referee okay. right? You just weren't. And that's something I think is missing now that creates some issues. But I thought, my leg's okay. Yeah. I was getting through these social games okay and I thought, yeah, I wouldn't mind just having another go. So I went back and tried to play, played reserve grade for a while and came on as a sub a couple of times in first grade. Well, that was 71, but talking 69, 70, is there sort of, uh, like you talked about challenges or uh, did you come off in any of those first couple of years there going, wow, that, that was what I did out there today meant that the game was just fantastic? Uh, or was it just that learning process? No, it was a learning process. I mean, I just, I really enjoyed refereeing. Yeah. Uh, there. You know, I'm trying to remember some some games from that period that um, you know really stick in my mind, but there's not a lot I can remember. I just know that I enjoyed it yeah. and found myself doing. Yeah, it's hard to say this, but found myself doing reasonably well. And I think what happens when you when you are a player and you become a referee. The hardest thing to do, I mean, it, it helps you become a reasonable referee if you've played. But the hardest thing to do is to stop thinking like a player and think, no, I have to take the tough decisions. Yeah. Right? Whereas, you know, when you first start, you're thinking as a player, say, ah, would I really caution that? When the laws tell you, you must. Yeah. And it's a transition that, seen a lot of ex-players have difficulty with when they've taken up refereeing. So really there was still a, a love for what you did in 69-70 but because of the separation of well if you're going to play in these two divisions of the IDSA you can't you can't do both. Yeah so and, and the other thing was I got married in 1970 and uh, for uh, just I can play and my, my then wife had friendships with friends of mine who were still playing. Yep. So it was all part of that. So that um, 71, 72, you were playing reserves predominantly with Coniston? Yeah, mainly. Um, yeah, I've been out and I haven't played essentially for six, five years. And how did the body go? Uh, yeah, much better than I would have thought. Um, I was able to hold my own in reserve grade and come on as a sub a few times in first grade, so I was reasonably happy with that. And uh, at this same time, you um, were also uh, continuing the junior coaching with the yep. under-15s and, and 16s team. So um, had that, was that just to help the, the team that you had and the, the boys that you had, or did you have no. a bit of a coaching itch as well? No, yeah... I had never thought about being a coach. I mean, I was happy coaching these kids, and they were a really good bunch of kids. And I mentioned a couple of names earlier. 
who both went on to play um, in the local leagues, um, and they were both good players. But there, there were a number in that side who were pretty good, and you come back to the Robert Brown knockout. Yeah. That team made the final against a Fern Hill side, which was played at uh, down at uh, Taraji, yeah. and I think that was a gala day. I don't remember. There was a huge crowd there. And we lost 1-0 to Balgowney that had uh, John McDonald and a couple of others in it. And, yeah, I was sad, really, because, you know, whilst Balgowney won the game, um, <laughs> Balgowney, Fernhill, John Walker coached the side, Whiskey. And uh, we, we had a number of um, good games during the year. So for yourself... Um, those two years were predominantly 79-72, um, playing some reserves, coming off the bench, uh, doing some coaching as well. Um, how did it transpire that you then made the next jump in 73-74 to, to first grade coach of, of Coniston? Uh, somewhat reluctantly. I, I mean, Gary Masters, Gus Masters, had been appointed coach of Coniston. Um, I was just like an assistant, sort of. I mean, he was coaching the side and... Uh, they, did, they weren't doing really well and he just handed his resignation in and the club said to me, will you do this? And I didn't really want to. I just, yeah. my wife had just had the first child and you know, I had to go and ask her in, in hospital what she <laughs> felt about it. Um, no, she said, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I did it and, you know, I... Again, there were no coaching courses in those days. So I bought this sort of Bible of coaching by uh, a Hungarian guy and I just churned my way through that to learn some things on top of what I'd learned through Kelly and those sorts of people. And what were those two years like in terms of the players you coached and, and the teams that you came up against? Um, we didn't do particularly well. We had some good players. I mean, Justin Norris was a goalkeeper. He was yeah. he was pretty good. Graham Rolls was still playing. Um, Followed by them, Michael Talbot, who was a, a good a good player. Um, but we, you know, were bottom half of the table yep. for the year and a half, and um, it's. We didn't look like being any better, and the club at that stage made it. Well, I was happy yeah. to say, look, you know, I've done what I can. <laughs> and then what did you uh, then think about coaching as a consequence of those two years where you sort of helped the club out? Um, did that sort of put an end yeah. in your mind to what yeah, you did. do at a senior level? It did, because the, the time demands, again, with at the time with work, what I was doing, and um, a young family. Um, The time demands were ridiculous. And I can think of a hell of a lot of things (laughs) better than being at Glasnoville at eight o'clock on a howling westerly wind August night. (laughs) And most of the players there you would have known. Oh, yeah. So was, well, that a, was that a hard transition in that two years? Like uh, uh, it was a bit. It, it was a little bit, uh, and I, I knew that because 
you know, when you're playing with someone, then you've got to start difficult things. I mean, with Justin Norris, I mean, he's a guy uh, I played cricket with as well. Yeah. And uh, we were quite friendly. But I remember one day, just had to speak fairly firmly to him and, you know, it never de- destroyed any friendship or anything yeah. like that. But you feel uncomfortable doing that. Yeah. And I thought, nah, best not. So was it pretty easy then in 75 to then, I guess, pick up the, the whistle again and yeah, get, get back into the refereeing ranks? Yeah, it was. I mean, I always thought I would do it again. Yep. And I'm pleased I did. I mean, I refereed then for 20, 21 years after yeah. that. And I loved every minute of it um, because it was forever a challenge. You know, there was never a time where you didn't feel you were being challenged because you always wanted to do what was right, what was best. It helped develop a real ethical framework. Um, I have to say it also helped develop um, decision-making things. You know, my, my professional life took me through a series of management roles um, but what I found that refereeing did, you, you're making decisions in tempestuous situations <laughs> and you have to stay calm while you're doing that. So these sorts of things helped um, in, in my professional life as well. So it's hard to sort of talk about 21 odd years there, but can you talk us through, I guess, the trajectory of where you refereed over that period of time and sort of where you started and then yep. where you finished and, and then the ups and downs because you you did different tiers. I guess you did different levels, yep. state league, NSL. So can you talk through a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I started off and uh, I guess because I'd had the two years, I moved reasonably quickly through the... Um, when I came back through the, the next... Uh, through the ranks Um, and in I think it was whatever George Nail's last game was (laughs) it was Tarawana and Berkeley I think I was on the line in the grand final on that game 78 78 and I don't know if it was that year or the year after that Primby became Wollongong United and, excuse me, they came into the comp and the first match of the round that year was at Berkeley between uh, those two and I was appointed to that. And that game stands out in my mind because there were about three and a half, four thousand people out at Berkeley Sports Ground and and it was a terrific game and, um, you know, the... uh, that club had, yeah, the the Primby Club, which is now Wollongong United, had been nothing but an asset yep. to the competition in the way crowds are. And, you know, you, there was always sort of a victim mentality amongst some of those. But as a referee, I thought, no, it doesn't matter. You have to treat teams equally. Yeah. It doesn't matter who they are, what they are, what they do. You, you see that the incident, you give the decision and you give it fairly and firmly on every occasion. 
and uh, that game sort of really kicked off for me. Because um, it was by that time, uh, we're talking that '78. Was that when you were getting appointed regularly to first grade? Uh, that that year pretty much started. Uh, well, the year before, I was getting games regularly yeah. in first grade in both the divisions. Divisions. Yep. And um, you know, it was again. You you never stop learning when you're refereeing until you hang your whistle up. And you know, you, we were getting great support from people like Vince Masters yeah. and George after he retired, Albert Robinson, the, the inspectors that were would come along and give you support, coaching support. But they would be harsh. Yeah. And you know, you'd go along thinking, oh, well, I'm doing all right. But they say, look, you're doing this and this. And unless they tell you, you, you don't know. And so you, you just constantly look to improve. And, uh, you know, around positioning and uh, application of the laws, recognising fouls, all sorts of things. Um, so the following year, in 79, I actually was appointed to the grand final. And it was a beautiful morning. I remember I lived in Balgani. I rode down to Balgani ground. I was watching something and felt this cold breeze blowing. And I thought, it's like rain. <laughs> but there was not a cloud in the sky. And it was Tarawana and Ferry Meadow. Yeah. And uh, I got to the first grade time and the clouds came over and it started to rain. And Ferry Meadow had been the team to beat. Yeah. Tarawana had... But the atmosphere that day from the Tarawana supporters on the southern hill and the come on you blues was just incredible. Um, I sent someone off. I'm wondering always whether I should have sent two off. Yeah. But uh, Fontana went in with his foot up and I went to caution him and Steve Langford came in and laid the booty into him. So I sent him off. So Ferry Meadow played with a man down for a fair bit of the game, but finished up winning 4-3 in extra time, I think, from memory. And it was just a terrific day. Yeah, well, I think it was late on, and um, a couple of guys that I've interviewed from a Tarawana perspective talked about, um, I think it was a late goal from, from Ferry Meadow that yeah. then uh, changed the scoreline, obviously, to their favour. So yeah. um, for yourself, though, um, those... Uh, grand final games um, although um, from what I'm listening that you would always just referee the same doesn't matter what the fixture but yeah. it still must be great to have a huge crowd and oh yeah the and, crowd and be in a grand final as a referee the crowd lives here and it is an honor. I mean yeah you, you strive to get a grand final and uh, you know if you get it great if one of your colleagues gets it well good on them um and the, the, more cha- the more people challenging for that, then the better the standard of refereeing because yeah. your colleagues lift with you trying to, to get there. But, um, you know, the, the whole issue with refereeing, honestly, is know the laws, be fair and firm all the time and take the tough decisions when you've got to. Yeah. So you're at the IPL, the top of, in this region the games that you can referee, when did it become, I guess, apparent in your mind that you'd like to 
tri-state league yeah. and, and give that a go and, and what was that like? The next year. Yep. The next year I did the grand final again. It's Fig Tree and someone else. Fig Tree Fig Tree won five nil from memory. Yes, Ferry Meadow won. Ferry Meadow won five one. Five point? Five nil. And uh, it was following that I thought, no done what I can do here. Yep. Uh, I'd love to go and give it a go. So uh, uh, yeah, but it was it was a real a real challenge because Everything that we'd achieved, I mean, we knew what the standard of competition yep. was. We knew it was the equivalent to about state league seconds. Yep. Um, but we weren't recognised that way. Right. So we had to go up to Sydney, join yep. the Federation and start off down the bottom. These days there are pathways in place for referees that recognise that, that okay. and with referees being trained at a younger and younger level. So their pathways are much better and their opportunities are much better than what we had. So it was really, really, really hard work. Start off doing fifth and sixth division out around the back of Woods of Western Sydney and doing reserve grade and thinking this is worse than the social comp I played in in Wollongong. <laughs> but we had to do it and uh, gradually worked worked through that. Um, took two, two or three years and then started doing state league thirds and seconds and, yeah. and then um, got selected through that federation to uh, participate on the National Youth League yep. and also got promoted to State League One. Yep. Um, about 82, 83, something like that. So did a heck of a lot of youth league games, national youth league games. I remember refereeing people like Di Marini, the War Twins, um, uh, Milicic. Yeah. Um, all those sorts of guys were playing and um, running the line on the... First grade games with um, you know, people like O'Connor and Cosmina and and all those sorts of people and uh, you know, those Sydney Olympics, Sydney City games were just they were like mini wars and um, you know I remember being on one at Marksfield one time and you know, all hell broke loose and people getting thrown off the grandstand onto the track. Um, you know, it was really crazy stuff. Did some difficult games with Eugle, yep. but also did a lot of really difficult games in the minor grade, first grade, uh, minor division, first grade games. You know, I remember a site called Hydock Ranges that were um, based at uh, Adenzel Park, not far yep. from Sydney United. But you know, they, they were just they were like mini internationals all the time. And I, I always remember one, it was about fourth division on some suburban ground. Got there to do the reserve grade game and there were about 20 people, if that. Went into the shed and came out of the shed to do the first grade game. And there's about 3,500, 4,000 people there. Wow. And it was Colo Colo, who were Chileans, against Transcendinos, who were Argentinians. And it was, the atmosphere on that game was just... Incredible, yeah. It was a 
the mini international. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the standard was was pretty good. But uh, yeah, there were just lots of challenges, and it, it was it was a difficult time. I did. Uh, I remember doing a semi-final. I went to extra time at Holsworthy, yeah, near there, and uh, I went to a penalty shootout. And uh, I wanted to retake of a penalty because the goalkeeper moved by about four meters. Anyway, that the team lost, and as we finished the game, this guy ran on and clobbered my AR, and you know, created all sorts of havoc. And you know, it was those years were very difficult yeah. in refereeing. I mean, there was a in that late seventies, eighties, we almost had an assault a week of a referee in this area. And uh, yeah, these days that doesn't happen, thank goodness, but yeah. it was very, very difficult in those days. And in that period there where you're going all out to these different grounds, having to, I guess, prove yourself and, uh, to others in, in the refereeing ranks in the state leagues, were you still, did you ever thought, geez, I might, I might give up, not because you didn't yeah. think you were good enough, but because the challenges were, I guess, logistics. Yeah. Um, well, the some of the stuff that you'd saw in the 70s that you thought might have gone away. Yeah. Um, no, none, of the, none of the issues around violence or abuse ever got to me because it was instilled in us, you don't listen to the crowd. Yep. You just don't listen. Yep. Right? So everything is focused inside the fence on the field. So you could tune out to it, but I would never take my wife and kids. Yeah. Because some of the things that you put up with are just unbelievable. But, um, yeah, I did a lot of state league games. Um, I was, I know that I was very close to appointment to the NSL. I, I did an NSL game. Yeah. Um, I did the Wolves in Brisbane. Yeah. Um, but... Personal circumstances occurred, yep. and that basically stopped my refereeing in Sydney at that stage. But the challenges were, you know, I would leave home at eight in the morning yep. because you had to do three games. Yeah. Right. So these days, most referees only do two games, if that. But we had to do three games: two lines and then a centre, unless you were doing state league. But I'd leave at eight in the morning. I wouldn't get home till eight on a Sunday night. So they were really long days. long days. And when I first went up there, I thought, I need to keep refereeing here because if I'm doing stuff that's worse than the yeah. amateurs, I need to keep standing up somehow. So I was doing three games here as well. And uh, do you ever, like you said, um, personal circumstances meant that it didn't end up that way but um, uh, did a part of you think well I did get to do a game oh, yeah. a and you know life being life there's always things that we can say in hindsight but you're pretty happy and content with what you did at that level oh yeah absolutely uh, I mean I would have liked to have done more yeah. um, you know I know I was on the verge because yeah. I was told yeah. Right. So I was on the verge of becoming a regular on the NSL. Uh, two of the senior inspectors up there had told me that, but 
that personal circumstances just made it impossible. And I always remember ringing up and pulling out of an appointment because of it. And I thought, I think this is the end up here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was because it was a real challenge, you know. And the State League games were a challenge. Uh, the State League one games were always very challenging. But uh, the difference in intensity between the State League and the NSL, you know, it... <sighs> In that day and age, the intensity on those games was just quite incredible. Sydney City, Sydney Olympic, Sydney City, St George, Olympic, St George, you know, those clubs, you know, that is nothing like we experience here. <laughs> and, you know, it was incredible, really. And over those 20 years, um, can you talk through, in particular from an Illawarra perspective, um, uh, the Referees Association, um, some of the people involved? I know there's a lot and you might miss out on some and I don't mean it to do it in that way because there's so many people. But talk us through this entity because, you know, some people, like you say, when, when we're players, we're disconnected and I've gone down a committee route and you went down a refereeing route and... And some people don't get to do any of them, so they don't understand. But what was it like being part of the refereeing fraternity? Um, for a long time, it was it was our club. Yep. You know, it was like a club. I mean, we Barry Scott, who's a long-standing referee, always used to call it his club, and and we had a, a very strong social engagement. Um, we had a lot of members. I mean, you know, we, because of the issue that you couldn't play in referee, I mean, a lot of ex-players actually chose to referee. Um, the pathways these days don't encourage that. And we, we have 60, 70 members, and we would meet Coronel Scott after the game. We... We would get a lot of members at monthly meetings. I was secretary, registrar, secretary, vice president, president over the years yeah. of the referees. And, um, you know, the, it, it's a different world that's not totally understood. Yeah. And, and people do not understand the mindset that you need to make a good referee. And they, they don't understand the... The, the necessity to not only do the right thing but always be seen to do the right thing because every, every single behaviour of yours is seen in other referees, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there is a need to act professionally and appropriately at all times. Um, there have just been some f fabulous people in the referees and... And, you know, we've got two guys now, Rob Robertson, Phil Torpy, both been members for 50 years. Um, you know, there were guys back then, I've mentioned a number of them. Um, you know, the older guys like Vince Masters, Albert Robinson, George Vickery, sorry, George Richardson, Jim Vickery, Jack Stiff yeah. was another one. Um, then there were a couple of people that did a massive amount with junior referees. Okay. Uh, 
uh, Mike Shetton and Eddie Utilinden. Yeah. Uh, they were both school teachers, and they set up this tremendous... When junior referees were introduced, um, and now we have two people continuing that, Lee Blanche and Paul Fleming are doing a fantastic job with our junior referees. Um, but Les, people like Les Parker, Mario Mastriani, <laughs> one of the great characters of <laughs> football in this area. I mean, Mario was an ex-Coniston junior, yeah. to be honest, and uh, it, it was one of his teams that I coached. Teams as well. Yeah, well, he went out back to Italy for a while, and I took over his team. <laughs> we were pretty close friends, Mario and myself, and uh, yeah. So, uh, and there are many others. I mean. You know, even long-standing people like John Muskega did, uh, now have done a lot for the association. When Andrew Naylor took it up, I mean, he continued a family tradition because yeah. George joined, Dave refereed, Stephen refereed, and then Andrew, when he finished playing, refereed. So there's been that family involvement. Yeah, he did a lot of work when he was the head of the Referees Council. Bobby Mazewski, you know, he's he's yeah, been wow. a referee for a lot of years and now doing the administration and and it's interesting just how many referees have been involved in the support of the administration dave Naylor was administration george um, john cowland was another who stopped refereeing and put a lot into football administration ross kerr who was president back in the 60s was a referee peter banks yeah. was a referee so you know it's those guys that have put a lot into the game just in that area but other areas as well yeah uh, I've always um, uh, wanted to know but uh, did you feel a certain chemistry with certain ARs at times um, more so than others um, and which allowed you to sort of referee at a higher level or at a higher standard than higher you? Yeah, the, what, the more what, confidence what uh, you, you get to know people yeah. you, when you're working as a team you get to know people who know and understand the game and who are prepared to work with you as a referee you're the boss right yeah. now when I say the boss uh, I mean you're in, it's your game yes. and you have the responsibility and uh, there is nothing worse than an AR who thinks they want to get involved yeah. we're, we're, we're told that at the beginning of the game before the game starts you give instructions to what you want from your ARs so you, you talk through it and one of the things you know you get lots of support and advice on how you do that from national coaches and people like that and one of the things you would always say is look keep your flag down don't flag because if there's something and I've seen it, I'll be happy. I might be happy to let it go. Whereas you might think it's a foul. If I miss you, someone will be, if I've missed something, someone will be screaming. So I'll look to you. Yep. And when you catch my eye, you know I'm looking for something. Then give me an indication. Okay. Now, there is nothing worse than when you've seen something, you're happy to let it go, but somebody asks, sticks their flag up and wants to start refereeing the game and you know the more experienced people yeah. uh, 
are on the line, you'll see that doesn't happen. And people work together. Uh, you know, you, you also learn through things. I'd love to tell you of an incident, but it'll take too long. But. Uh, the, you've had, and you spoke about some of the mentors that you had, even in the first couple of years where you, you started and then had a period off and then went back. But um, yourself, you would have, um, over the years, um, helped help referees. So... In, in that sense, does that uh, give you a sense of satisfaction to give back to the support that you were given? Yeah, I did. Um, when I finished refereeing, I blew the last whistle on my 50th birthday. <laughs> um, and for about five or six years, I, I inspected or assessed. Yep. And yes, you go in and you, you try and give advice. And you see the people who want to hear you. Yeah. You know, I always got told when an assessor comes and talks to you, just listen. You don't have to agree with them, just listen. And, and think about what they say and then make up your mind whether you're going to do it. And, you know, how that's presented to you can... Um, you know, if it's presented in the right way to you, then you can go away and think about it and actually act on it. Um, what I what I did find with a couple of people that they just didn't want to know. You know, you, you would say, "Look, you've got to deal with this." Why are you always tell me what I do wrong? I said, "No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm saying you did this, 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 and this one." There's one. One person I can remember I think could have been a fabulous referee. Honestly, he's one of the most promising referees I've seen. I won't say who it is. And he moved well. He did everything well. But what happened? He was promoted too quickly. And he got to the stage where no one could tell him anything. And he... He no longer referees. He does a lot for the game, but he no longer referees, which is a, a bit sad. But, you know, you just have to listen, process it, and say, yeah, no, I don't agree with that, or yeah, yeah I do agree with that. Take what you will out of it. Yep. When you look back at your refereeing career, um, is there still games that stick in your mind where they, they're the first two or three games that might come back into your mind when either you're thinking of this interview or, or, or just thinking about your times as a referee? Yeah, there are. Uh, I mean, Can you pick one out for us and, and tell us why? <laughs> well, I always remember that Berkeley uh, Primby game, which yeah. was the first game of the season. Prim- uh, not Primby, Wollongong United's first year in the Premier League. Big crowd. Basically, my second year in yeah. the first grade. Certainly, that grand final um, between Tarawana and Ferry Manor. Um The NSL game I did, I remember. Um, yeah. I have nightmares about a, a youth league game that I did between Sydney Olympic and Canberra. Um, not only because of one incident and uh, I knew I'd missed something. I knew I'd missed it. It was remember Peter Wilson, the goalkeeper from down here, yeah. who was playing with Sydney Olympic. I, was, I know I was refereeing 
fairly well at the time and yeah, followed the ball and watched it go over the goal line. I turned and I saw Wilson with his hand to his face falling to the ground. I thought, what's happened there? And Marco Perinovic was running away. And I went over and Wilson said he headbutted me. I thought, oh, I haven't seen this. I looked over at my AR, who's a great AR, terrific AR. He was also on the National League. And he, he, he didn't see it. The other guy I knew wouldn't have seen it. He said, Bundy, I can't do anything about it. I haven't seen it. I said something to him, but I won't repeat that. Yeah. Went into, I got spat on when I left the field by some woman at the race. Went into the shed after the game and the inspector came in, who is fabulous, hard man. Roy Pierce, ex-international referee, and he said to me, did you see that headbutt? I said, no, I didn't know. And he said to the two A.R.s, did you see the headbutt? And he said, no. Both of them said no. And he, his words have never left me. He said, well, you're the only three on the ground that didn't. And he said, every one of you had a responsibility to see it. And he said, you're the referee. It's your game. You're the one in charge and you'll be the one that pays the price. And 100% right. Yeah. 100% right. Those words have never left me. And, you know, I try to say this to the referees because often they'll say, and they'll show it off like this, oh, I didn't see it. Well, they don't get. Yeah. You're paid to see it. The clubs expect you to see, see it. it. Yeah. People expect you. You know, fans expect you to yeah, see it. Three, yeah. And you've got a responsibility to see it. So. Before we talk about the uh, last uh, decade and, and, and what you've done, um, I guess more in an administrative sense with Football South Coast um, and the different roles you've played there, uh, how did you um, take as a referee, especially locally with like to say Sid Bears, Phil Murphy and and the journos that write about the game, um, how did you sort of, did you read the newspaper afterwards? And and how did you take that and sort of, from that perspective, reading what they thought of the game? Yeah, I always read it. You you expect criticism. What a founding referee, to be honest, is that you see the best and the worst in people. You know, you made the comment before this started, Travis said the majority of people in this game are fabulous. Yeah. Absolutely fabulous. But you do see the best and the worst. And, yeah, I've been abused by people over decisions on occasions. And people who have respected, you know, incredibly. And just on two occasions in particular, never leave me. But I was trying to help the club. And I caught this barrage of abuse. And I thought, Really? You know, so that person, yeah. <laughs> I don't you know, it's, it's just things that happen, but referees are, are the representatives of the administration of the game on the field. And, you know, you, you've got a responsibility to keep the game um, clean. And that's what, what you do. 2003 to 2008, um, you were a Football South Coast Judiciary member and, and chairman. Um, what did these roles entail and, and how do you see your time in these positions? <laughs> the, the reason I did that, 
my my work had become incredibly busy and I really didn't have time to give to to the referee Um, and I thought how can I do something Barry Scott had been the judiciary representative for years had always been a referee and I thought okay Um, so I offered to do that so I became the referee representative on the judiciary and um, it was a couple of hours commitment every Wednesday night so it was I could organise things around that it didn't impact on work particularly and um, so I just started doing that and it was it was an interesting time because you know what and then the, the then chairman left Bruce Cunningham had been a chairman and he left to join the board of a men's council, I think. So I became the chair. But what I... You see the same people, the same names appearing. (laughs) The... Again, you're dealing out justice in a fair but firm way. There are guidelines. This is a penalty for this. What I did find, though, really, the, the number of people would, that would come in blindly defending someone that had clearly offended yep. was just beyond my comprehension. You know, and, and I had sometimes seen incidents and people would come in and just lie through their teeth. And I, I just, I couldn't come to grips with that part of it you know most people accepted punishment we never got that many hearings but sometimes we would get hearings you think really what's this about so you know it was an interesting time um, but it was a way of just continuing an involvement being the I was the referee's representative but uh, you're dealing with the facts in front of you not necessarily taking the referee's point of view. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah, you make mistakes, you make errors of judgment, referees do. So sometimes players had a justification and you, you would respect that. And because it's, um, I guess, a, a funnel in a sense of uh, the bad bits of our game, did it take a, doing that sort of thing week in, week out in the season over numerous years, does it, take some of the shine or enjoyment away for the game or did you see it as a role that had certain parameters therefore I've got to adjudicate yep. but did it sort of take away a bit for the love of the game? No, not at all. I used to, I, I, because I wasn't, football soccer, I think it might have been, I don't know if it was still the IFA at the time when I first started but it may not have been. Um, they said we don't wants you assessing referees because you might be seen to have a conflict of interest. Well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, when you're assessing referees, you're also looking for referees not doing the right thing. So uh, there's an ethical framework that one operates within and you can differentiate the two. But, okay, I accepted that and I stopped assessing uh, and just focused on 
doing the judiciary and and uh, yeah it was it, it was good you know and it was something I had time to do and I felt like I was giving you know yeah. it was every Wednesday and you're still giving back to the game and dealing out deserved punishments. Uh, 2010, you, uh, with Football South Coast, you had to bring together the various disciplinary um, processes that the Football South Coast had. Um, It sounds complex. Um, (laughs) Well, uh, can you briefly talk through uh, what you did and and, and what, what was achieved out of it? Yeah, I mean... Eddie, uh, as the chair, approached me. Um, he said, look, I'd like you to consider doing this. Um, the, the unification had brought the, the juniors, the women's, the amateurs, everyone under yeah. the, the banner, but they all had their own judiciary processes. And every controlling football body is responsible for the discipline, yep. right? Whereas the, and the unification model was that the Football South Coast was the controlling football body, but the individual councils ran the competition. So the idea was to try and consolidate all of the, the four disciplinary yep. processes into one and have that consistent with uh, Football New South Wales FFA processes because there were certain regulations that you had to be consistent with. So it was a case of just developing a set of regulations that were consistent with FFA, Football New South Wales, but then consulting with each of the councils to ensure that they were happy with what existed and make sure that um, when the regulations were put in place, that uh, they could all live with them. Um, It took a while to do that. Um, In addition to that, what was then involved was um, setting up panels of people to sit on what we call the match review committee which is the judiciary committee and does yellow cards red cards well does red cards basically and any immediate game related incident and part of the role was that part of my role was that I should not then sit on any panels right but um be responsible for putting them together. We then also had general purpose tribunals that might consider disputes and disputes between clubs, disputes between players, incidents that were way out of hand, those sorts of things, and then an appeals board. So I do that pretty much every year. Um, We've had the same match review committee now for quite a number of years. It's Ian Witheridge... Yep. used to play with Fig Tree Chairs. He was on the Judiciary Committee when I stepped off it to do this. Paul Pazetti, who was on it for a longer period than me, and Dave Owen has replaced me as the referees rep. So they've been doing all the red cards for 
you know, a goodly number of years. Um, what happens every time there's some crazy incident is referred to me to determine what action should be taken, whether it goes to a tribunal, whether it... And what we did to stop the stupid hearings, because yeah. we were wasting a lot of time with hearings, we, we actually implemented clauses that said, if you apply for a hearing and the panel determines that you ought to have known there was no chance of success, there's an additional penalty, right? So that has virtually eliminated player hearings. All the waste. Yeah. So all the rubbishy time we wasted listening to people argue crazily about their <laughs> appeals has disappeared. The other thing, we, used, we were having a lot of general purpose tribunals because of incidents that would occur. And what we've now done is implement a system where if once we get all the evidence in, we can make some sort of a decision around whether, yeah, it looks pretty likely this is what has happened. So we then write to the parties and say, well, look, here it is. This is a recommended sanction that you can accept or you can choose to have it heard by a tribunal. But just remember that if you choose to have it heard, then the tribunal might set it aside, increase it, yeah. decrease it. Most, the vast majority, vast, vast majority of people accept their recommended sanction. Um, and there's an acceptance of responsibility, a much greater acceptance of responsibility now than there was 10 or 15 years ago. And it ago. seems like uh, the efficiency is in place that people's time isn't wasted as Correct. well. Correct, yeah. You've then, um, uh, continuing on from 11 through to the present, you're the disciplinary commissioner. Um, that's what that role and is. And that's what that is. Um, but in 19, you um, were asked uh, or requested to rejoin the Referees Council um, and have been head of that council. Um, how's that been going back into that area after a period of time? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting. It was not something I really wanted to do. Um, it coincided with me um, moving um, to the Shoalhaven. Um, you know, I'd been attending games on a regular basis with Phil Murphy and Paul Pazzetti, who were good friends. And um, I thought, you know, I'm in the Shoalhaven now, can I do this? But the referees had gone through a bit of turmoil and... Uh, they were having difficulties with some volunteers and there, there was, uh, I don't really know how to put this, but there, there was just a lack of understanding of what is necessary for referees. Yep. Um, and as a consequence, there'd been some issues developed uh, around the organisation. And um, so I thought, yeah, okay. Um, I'll do it for two years. Yeah. This is now the third year, <laughs> but I'm not sure how much longer I'll do it. Um, but I, I think we've overcome those issues. I think there is now a much greater recognition of 
the within football set a case of what is needed for referees and and what is you know it's there there is a shortage there has always been a shortage of referees but the shortage is increasing and that is the biggest one of the biggest issues in football generally because not just in the Illawarra but across all areas the number of people prepared to take up refereeing is dropping and there is this incredible reliance on young referees um, whilst uh, I totally support the notion of bringing young referees yeah. through it's a bit like you, you don't put a new graduate commerce graduate in as a CFO <laughs> so to expect a, a young referee of 19 or 20 to be doing a Premier League Grand Final is just cuckoo land yeah, stuff, right? It takes a good five or six years at a senior level to really develop as a referee. And um, the, the problem that we have is trying to... There's been this mass increase in participation in play yeah. beyond what was normal. So, you know, a lot of guys that give it away at 30 and a oh, referee, you know, but that's not happening. I mean, Andrew Nail and Brendan Fotheringham are probably the, Carla Blanche maybe, are the last three ex-players to take it up and they're all well past 40. Um, you know, we've got very few people in that 25 to 40 age group. Yeah. And... And it's all because of the growth in participation. So there, there, there's an issue there that we are... Football South Coast are aware of it, yep. trying to address it, but it's not just here. Yeah. It's, it's everywhere. Um, yeah, we've also got this now massive growth in women's football. So we're trying to encourage more females. Yeah. And we've had mixed teams on the Premier League. Um, which then creates a problem, <laughs> but uh, you know, in case of dressing room infrastructure yeah. and all these sorts of things. Yeah, that definitely has some but pace. some of the young girls are doing very well. I mean, a, a former Illawarra female referee has won the NPL, the ACT or ACT NPL referee of the year, and uh, was appointed to the AL, the women's. A-League yeah. Women's Grand Final as an AR. They've got Lachlan Keevers, who was a former Illawarra referee, now on the National League panel, on the A-League panel. Um, so there are some good things happening. Our biggest issue now is trying to address the shortage and how we get more people keen to take it up. Uh, the, the time that you've had in the game, um, you know, it's been you know, a long time. And you've had worn different hats. Um, uh, do you still enjoy it, and and still like giving back to the game? Because there's a sense, even in last two hours here, that we're talking that there is a, I guess, something that was maybe instilled by your parents and stuff that you've learnt that you want to give back to the game, and and you like to serve the game. Do yeah. you still that see that continuing for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I do. Um, as long as I can. Um, it, it is a, it's a little more difficult because I now live yeah. in the Shoalhaven but 
it's an hour away and, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to continue the disciplinary role while Football South Coast are happy for me to do it. Yep. Uh, the referee's role, I will certainly see out the two-year term I have. Yep. Uh, beyond that, um, I'm not sure. Got to try and build some succession planning yeah. into that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I love it. I watch the A-League. You know, I try and get up and watch a game every week. During COVID, I was upsetting a few people because there were no competitions up here, but I was going to watch games in the Shoalhaven. I would send them photos, so beautiful day, a game going on. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, there were no games up here. So, you know, just watching the game and being a part of it, it's, it's been my life for, yeah, 60, 70 years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's... Whilst I can, I will. Um, whilst the the beauty of the disciplinary role, see my uh, my lady, my partner, yeah. still works uh, on Monday to Friday. She's uh, she's at work, and I I can do a lot of the yeah. disciplinary stuff. Uh, come the weekend, it's it's a little bit harder to <laughs> get to a game, but I, I try and get to a game and have a look. So. And finally, um, when you do watch football now. Um you're a player, you're a coach, you're a referee. Do you drift out of seeing the game in those three ways or, or can you sort of categorise it and say, well, I watched today's game as a referee or I'm just a supporter? How, does it, how do you watch games now? Um, Where look, right, mainly, I mean, look, probably the referee's hat sits yep. longest on my head. But, you know, I look and sort of... I love a game that's interesting and you know I think back of those days the early days of the Premier League from 78 through probably the mid 90s where I think the competition was at its strongest Um, and if not the strongest the more intense and the more well supported it it was always an interesting competition I watch it now and I think some of the players are more skillful, but I don't think they have the same level in, of intensity in the game. Yeah. Although, having said that, I reckon the Wollongong United, Wollongong Olympic game at Police Boys Club last year that finished up 5-4 yeah. was as good a game as I've seen over 35, 40 years. It was a fabulous game, and if there were games like that, then it would be tremendous. But I always watch it as... A referee and whether you know because they still provide feedback to referees indirectly um and i'm always looking because you've got to be looking to see who's going to be doing the uh the games at the end of the year and that's really on a performance over the year and you're looking for those that know what they have to do under the laws and that don't dodge decisions so those sorts of things play a part, but just watching the game is is and the, I watch it because I want to watch the best I can. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I want to try and pick a game that I think is going to be interesting to go and watch. But uh, yeah, it's it's just a love of the game that 
know, I know I've worn a lot of hats, but you do understand in that all the perspectives. Yeah. And uh, that was something that was particularly important at the judiciary because, uh, you know, it, it's very easy to be accused of being a referee. But the, the thing about it is you, you do have to understand whether the referee may have made an error of judgment, not a mistake. Yeah. It's an error of judgment. And, um, you know, those sorts of things come into account. But I never look at it with any bias now. And that, that's been the beauty. You know, most people go with hand over one eye and only see it from one perspective. But, yeah, don't do that. And, you know, being on the board of football sarcastic, I'm not going to talk about that, but it has been a tremendous experience. I mean, professionally, I've been on a couple of boards. But, you know, there, there are really genuine people on that board and it's, uh, you know, that have the game at heart and want nothing but good for the game, so. Well, on that note, Rex, I'd like to sincerely thank you for travelling up here to Coromel um, to spend time with me and, and telling your journey. It's It's been truly fascinating and I've enjoyed, enjoyed it immensely, so uh, thank you very much. I appreciate Thanks, it. Travis. And congratulations on what you're doing, because I think it's great for the game. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and downloading episode 69. It is sincerely valued. Thank you to Rex for the time he spent recounting his journey in the game and for travelling up the coast to meet with me. I'm your host, Travis. Goodbye for now.